Hello, good morning. You're very welcome to the programme. Between now and nine, dear, 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 managing the rapidly expanding population of Sika stags and hinds, the origins of uniquely Irish Christmas traditions explained, and a Christmas lights display so bright might be seen from outer space. First this morning, though, I am going to turn straight away to a good news story because so much of the time at the moment, farming gets featured in the media when it's being criticised or when farmers are on the back foot defending what it is that they do. Sometimes deserved, sometimes not. But I thought it would be interesting to meet some farmers who are winning by whatever measure it is that you choose to apply to them, be it water quality, profitability, carbon emissions, productivity, you name it, this husband and wife team appear to have got it all sorted. This, it would seem, is what happens when you let two scientists run a dairy farm on the side of a very steep hill outside Dungarvan, County Waterford. It's a multi-species there that we put in uh, two years ago now. How's it taking? Oh, you know, we're really pleased with it. Uh, it's a seven species mix. So there is red clover, white clover, chicory, plantain, timothy. And, is there timothy, timothy in that mix? Fescue. Yeah, timothy yeah. and fescue. Um, yeah, we're, 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 we're... Everywhere we're, you look on Neil and Gillian O'Sullivan's farm, there is some form of improvement underway, from the multi-species sward underfoot to the hedgerows surrounding the fields. Over a thousand trees... Yep. That went in two years ago. Wow. White thorn, black thorn, there's birch, oak. Apart from the aesthetics of it, what impact do you think it's actually going to make or do you want it to make? It's going to be a wildlife corridor. It's going to be a shelter break for the yard. So when you imagine that's going to be a line of trees in 15 years' time, it'll be a great shelter break for for the sheds. They're not big, they're not small. They are, by their calculations, perfectly stocked for the amount of grass that they can produce on challenging ground and to ensure no damage is being done to the surrounding watercourses. So we came down here in 2010 and we took over the running farm in 2013. There was about uh, 80, 85 cows and now we're at a stage where we're milking about 95, 100 cows. So it hasn't been a huge level of expansion. Um, but we were. Did you go higher than that around the lifting of quota? We went. We moved up to 105, 110 cows, and then we realised that uh, if we wanted to de-risk the farm in dry spells that we're most exposed to on this farm, then pulling back a little bit on stocking route was going to suit the farm a little bit better in terms of matching what the farm can grow for in terms of grass growth for to the number of cows it can carry. And that didn't feel like moving backwards. That was just the logical response to the amount of grass that you could grow. That's how we look at it. It's all, it's all around maintaining profitability, work-life balance, and that's why we would have come back. It's not just about all of the usual measurements of what is and isn't sustainable. Work-life balance is as important as profitability and helped considerably by moving to once-a-day milking which allows for the tyranny of the blackboard to be accommodated. The board is, it dictates where we're going to be every evening. A very busy-looking household diary hanging over the kitchen table in everyone's line of sight. The kids ha- are involved between music and different sports. We have something on every single day, so 
look, that's that's the freedom that once a day has given us. We were able to attend all of these things, attend all the matches, um, try and encourage them to do a music practice, which is very difficult. But yeah, it, it's our, our, we're full on with four kids. This is one of the ways in which we have been attempting to and have been able to reduce our chemical nitrogen input. Philip? Uh, Back in the sheds, uh, if you mention any kind of progressive or experimental measure, either Gillian or Neil will be trying it out for size. We fill it so high with water and then we can dissolve our granular fertiliser and apply it to the field in a spray, which is called a foliar spray, a foliar application, so that a lot of the nitrogen in the fertiliser is hitting the leaf of the plant and is absorbed more efficiently. As opposed to being injected As into the soil. going into the soil. Does it work? It works. It works. It's, it's uh, like any technology or like any uh, practice, there are do's and don'ts. There's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it and then a Neil way to do it. <laughs> uh, but it has, yeah, we've, we've seen good results. We've maintained our grass growth while reducing our nitrogen input by about 30% this year. So on this farm at least, the reduction in the use of nitrogen hasn't been a response to price, it is because you're using this piece of kit. Price plays into it um, and also wanting to reduce our carbon footprint, wanting to reduce the amount of synthetic uh, uh, products that are going in, on, on, on into our soils, trying to improve the health and the fertility of our soils and our, and our biodiversity. It's all playing into everything. Also, we can hopefully maintain our production, our pasture production and maintain our output. Yeah. Mm. Their heads are down and buried in the detail of the day-to-day, but they're also looking over the horizon to the ever-changing extremes that the weather can throw at them, the worst the market could throw at them in terms of price for their milk, and whatever big policy changes are on the horizon. For instance, though they are in derogation, they spread nitrogen nowhere near the level that they're allowed to because they have a sense of changes ahead. Yeah, so we worked with the, the AgNav team, which measures your greenhouse gas emissions in the baseline years 2018. So we looked at the changes that we put into the farm. In the kitchen, Gillian produces a spreadsheet showing the astonishing amount of carbon and methane reductions that they have achieved in the last five years before anyone ever asked the agriculture sector for a 25% reduction. And then we had a big, big reduction in the nitrogen, uh, chemical nitrogen that we're using. And that has resulted in um, a drop in our total greenhouse gas emissions from the farm in 18% over that five-year period, which is over 70% of the way there in terms of getting to that 25% um, target that uh, is is there for agriculture. So I think that's a, that's a huge okay. change. Um, and was that mostly achieved through reducing stocking numbers? So the total number of cows has reduced by 9%, uh, but the young stocks of our replacement heifer calves and yearling heifers have come down by, you know, between 25 and 45 percent. OK, so we have an overall stocking re- rate reduction of 18 percent. So that's that's a driver in terms of enteric methane. Uh, but fertilizer usage is, is probably a, a, a bigger driver okay. than that. Well, let's just cut to the chase on the number that's going to matter. What happened to your profitability as you reduced stock by that much? Even in a torrid year, I think we're, we're set up to have a reasonably low cost base. So even if even if our, our returns, if our milk prices is not so good, we're still making a margin. 
a heifer being fed in a pen on her own because she has a broken leg that they have treated themselves reminds me that these guys are both qualified vets. Neil has just completed a master's in environmental science and Gillian devours science journals. The drive to do things better is unrelenting. How much time do the pair of you spend thinking about what to do on this farm? You actually wouldn't believe the time we put into it. <laughs> Every decision Gillian probably is... thinks more than I do. <laughs> no. It is a wonderful resource that we have. It is really, really important yeah. to make decisions about it so that our four children will have something to enjoy into the future and that it's there for them to enjoy into the future. So, but it, I, I suppose it is kind of cliched, but farming is a way of life rather than just a job. You know, you don't switch off. Maybe we should do a bit more, but you don't switch off at 4.30 or 5 o'clock, uh, you know, just because you have to go into the house. And your thinking can be done while you're in the car on the way from one farm to the other or on the way to the school to pick up kids or you know, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, it's it, and it's also our, it's part of our recreation as well, you know, because um, when the kids are free or off at the weekend, they'll be out with us doing a few jobs and something that's that's safe or something that everyone can participate in. So it's it's a, it's a resource, it's an educational resource, it's a, a recreational resource, and obviously it's a very important source of income. One big thing about farming is that the highs are higher in the job. The absolute joy you get from growing young stock and seeing them perform really well in in as milking cows or bringing calves into the world or having trying something that works out on the farm the absolute joy from that you, is you own is on, those achievements yeah. a lot more than you would in other contexts but despite the highs being higher the lows are lower and that's the trade-off in terms of lows is there a disconnect in your mind between what it is that you're trying to do here and where the national conversation around farming is and public attitudes towards farmers. I find it very frustrating at times because I can see that farmers, especially I mean, I'm, we're, we're in a couple of discussion groups and when you're chatting to farmers, you can see the effort they're trying to, to, make, to make changes on their farm. But every change that you put into practice on a farm brings risk because the first time you try it, it's never going to work. Like, we all know that. It's, you can't just say, well, it this is not, it. It may not work. I yeah. know, but you'll always you make know. mistakes. And it's those mistakes that are going to cost you. And it, when you're in, a, in, an, in an industry where mistakes ca- can be very, very costly, mm-hmm. then change is going to be costly. So that's why it's, it's hard to get people to move the dial. So when people say, oh, farmers should do X, yeah. it's never as simple as that. No, it's not as simple as that. Uh, and I, I think farmers feel sometimes, whether it's justified or not, that they're... They're demonised um, for doing something that, that people have done for millennia here, you know, which is producing good food from grass. Ah, there you go. There is one downside to spending time with these people. Being around so much relentless improvement actually ended up leaving me feeling quite inadequate by the time I had left the farm. But that is my problem, not theirs. My thanks to Gillian and Neil O'Sullivan for putting up with me uh, staying several hours longer than I had initially invited myself for to ask them so, so many questions. Now, 
If you go for a walk in the Wicklow Hills today, there is very little chance that you won't see a Sika deer. The population has expanded rapidly in recent years and in that one county alone could be as high, if we were able to measure it, could be as high as 150,000. The Deer Management Strategy Group report was launched earlier on this week and recommends targeting a cull of the population in five counties. Now, the farm organisations have welcomed it as long overdue But the Irish Deer Commission, an association of hunters and conservationists, whose members are going to be the ones doing much of the actual culling, have said that they fear moves are underway to reduce deer to the level of vermin. Damien Hannigan of the Irish Deer Commission joins me now from RT Cork. Damien, thank you very much for getting up early and coming in and talking to us. How are you? Good morning, Philip. My my pleasure. Um, Can you tell me, please... What or who is it that has created this fear in your mind that deer are now being regarded as vermin? Yeah, I, I suppose, look, it's, it's probably important to say that you know, deer are, are a protected species under our wildlife acts. They're very much an, an iconic species. Um, I, I appreciate in County Wicklow, um, to some people, they may be a pest or, or you know, they're, 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 they play a big part in their lives or uh, be it positive or negative. But, you know, in, in many parts of Ireland, you know, deer are managed at sustainable levels. Um, and uh, we are calling in excess of 55,000 deer annually in Ireland. So uh, deer management in most places is, is taking place. Um, but in recent months, we have heard a lot of uh, comments around deer, sometimes while well-intended, can be ill-informed. And uh, a consequence of that is that we are seeing a, a significant upsurge in, in crimes against deer or wildlife crime uh, where deer are being effectively indiscriminately shot and, and dumped in the countryside and that's something that nobody really wants to see. So I, I suppose there is a concern that, you know, amongst those who are involved in deer management and conservation that, uh, you know, deer have become somewhat of a of a political football, you know, in terms of, of uh, uh, the opinions and, 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 the, and the comments that we hear about deer because the fact of the matter is that we've never undertaken a population census of deer in Ireland, nor do we need to know the, uh, every deer that we have in Ireland. But, you know, we hear a lot of comments about deer, you know, in terms of increasing, expanding numbers. And, and, and certainly since COVID-19 in particular, mm. uh, we, we've seen additional deer. But if, if, you're, if you're listening in so County as, Wicklow... As the man says, Damien, you, unless you measure a problem, you don't know if it is a problem or not. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the basic fundamentals of the management of any species is that you, you, you start with a number uh, and you say, OK, this is this is the extent of the issue that we have and this is where we need to get to. Um, so, you know, we've heard counties mentioned as as hotspots and obviously Wicklow is uh, unquestionably has issues and challenges around deer. I think that's I think that can't be argued at point. But when we hear other counties being mentioned as deer hotspots, while we haven't even developed a, a process of of uh, of what is a hotspot or what okay. is a problem area. And would it be fair to say, Damien, that if the problem was addressed in Wicklow, that what is being seen in the surrounding counties would become less of an issue? I, 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 I'm not in, in totality. Um, I think the data that we so hunters each year are required to make an annual declaration in terms of the number of deer culled by species and location, and that that data tells us that one third of the national cull is taking place in County Wicklow. But when you add the counties of Cork, Kerry, Tipperary, Waterford, Galway, and Donegal, it adds up to 75% of the national cull. So that doesn't in any way scientific give us a population, but it does indicate to where the problems may be. Um, so it's really about 
developing a strategy to support farmers, foresters, you know, and other land uses in those areas where where there are problems. Um, because as I mentioned, in the vast majority of areas, deer are being managed at sustainable levels. Because when I look at the data again, you know, in in, in 2015, we were calling 31,000 deer per year. Uh, and, the, and the most recent data before COVID-19, as I said, it was in excess of 55,000. So hunters play a very important okay. role in managing deer and they are uh, responding to that. Talk to me about what you feel should be the role of Quilche in this, particularly again in Wicklow as one of the largest landowners in that hotspot county. What should they be doing to help manage this problem more effectively? So Quilche, um, as I suppose currently um, would would um, have on all the properties that they that they hold the sporting rights on, and that's important to say because Quilche own lots of land that they actually don't own the sporting rights, so deer can't be managed on those lands. But um, so from Quilche's point of view is that obviously traditional deer habitat is forestry and, and mountainous areas, um, so it's really important. And Quilche have played an active role in more in recent years. A lot of people would like mm-hmm. to see them go further. Um, um, and, and they have come in for some criticism. In Should terms they be of creating meadow spaces, Damien, to attract deer towards where they could be shot at? Yeah, I, I think it within, you know, the Irish Deer Commission have played an active role in, in the recommendations contained in the, the Irish Deer Management Strategy Report. And one of those recommendations that we pushed for was around forestry design. So typically what we see in large commercial forests here in Ireland is really wall to wall, you know, plantations with very little open space for managing deer. Where if we look in other jurisdictions, you tend to see deer lawns or open green spaces where, where deer can be managed. And when you don't have these, effectively what you're doing is you're pushing deer onto a Joining um, farmlands, you know, and creating mm. problems for those landowners. We invited Quilja onto the programme this morning, but they said that they were unable, unfortunately, to provide us uh, with a spokesperson. People say, Damien, that the obvious solution here is to facilitate, is to allow for, encourage um, more venison to enter the food chain. What are the impediments to that? Yeah, look, very much deer management and venison go hand in hand. Without a vibrant uh, venison market, we won't have deer management. Um, so really what we would sort of we call for on at the moment is is in regards to um, there's various directives in, in other jurisdictions that allow hunters to cull a certain number of deer and sell those deer into the food chain once, once they're inspected um, to, mm-hmm. in regards to disease and so on. Are they paid for doing that? Um, yeah, they, they're paid. Like venison is is very much a superfood in in terms of to help benefits, but equally, it's 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 it can be a quite an expensive meat. Um, I so don't hunters, just mean paid by the dealer, though. I mean paid by the Department of Agriculture for providing the service of reducing the female population. No, as a, look, we've over six thousand licensed hunters, and they play a, a very important role. But it's done without cost to the taxpayer. So effectively. Hunters, you know, throughout Ireland, you know, it, it's quite an expensive in regards to the equipment and ammunition and so on is all at their own expense. Um, so at currently at the moment, there is no financial reward um, for those hunters for undertaking the part and role that they do undertake. I've just gotten a text, Damien, from Bob, who says, please assure the kids that Santa's reindeer won't be culled. Obviously, Dasher, Donner, Blitzen and so on are not going to be featuring in any cull. But it does, doesn't it, highlight once again the huge range of views when it comes to deer from those who would say they're an invasive species, get them off my land now to the others who would say, I ah, know all God's creatures got a place in the choir, leave them alone. Yeah, it, it it amazes me with the with the troubles that we have in the world. You know the 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 polarizing and and uh, views that deer management takes. I suppose, but there is no really getting away from the fact that deer. 
you know, in unsustainable numbers have a negative impact on farming, forestry and, and, and the wider ecosystem. And it does, in the absence of a natural mm. predator, it does fall on man to manage their numbers because deer populations can effectively triple every five years if unmanaged. And, and that's not something that's positive for, for the countryside or for anybody. 150,000 tripled in five years' time. There'd be <laughs> more deer on the island than people before too long were you to leave it. Um, so back to the idea of subsidising hunters in some way. Do you think that that would incentivise people? Because they must be getting very little money for these very, very small Sika hinds who are quite often not that much bigger than a dog. Yeah, I, I think for the vast majority of hunters is, you know, managing deer is is not something that really for financial rewards. It's really for the love of hunting. Um, it's for the, the, the prize of, of venison. Um, you know, it's, it's it's really what it is important to... I've, I've just returned from Scotland where it's very different in the sense of you have contractors that are... Their full-time role is managing deer. And, and it may be the case that we have areas in Ireland, such as County Wicklow, where we need full-time deer managers that are actually paid um, to carry out a role. But the vast majority of our 6,000 uh, licensed deer hunters, it is very much a, a recreational activity or a semi-professional activity because um, mm-hmm. there's only certain times of the year that we can actually cull deer. We can't cull deer uh, for, for 12 months of the year for, for, for animal welfare reasons and other factors. Damien Hannigan of the Irish Deer Commission, thank you very much. Do let us know your thoughts, countrywide at rte.ie. And um, well, let's go and revisit this one next year and see what difference the uh, new management policy has made. Interest among farmers in participating in environmental schemes, I think it is fair to say, has never been higher. Interest in the wider public about how effective they are has also probably never been greater either. Very, very unfortunate then that the current scheme, Acres, which pays farmers for improved environmental results, has experienced a very serious delay in payments. 18,500 farmers expecting cheques before Christmas to settle their bills by year's end have been told by the department that they will not be paid now until February of next year. A lot of disappointment about this delay, as Hannah Quinn Mulligan discovered when she visited Michael Collins, who farms on the Burren. Okay, Hannah, you might stand in here a bit now because it's getting wet, so we'll stand in here in the shelter for a bit. On a windy, blustery morning in the heart of the Burren in County Clare, suckler farmer Michael Collins is showing me his farm. We have two craigs. One is about 115 acres and the other has 125, I think. Michael is one of the 18,600 farmers, predominantly along the western part of Ireland, who are in the Acres Cooperation Measure, the new agri-environmental scheme. Their payments have been delayed until February 2024. Previous to this, Michael was in a specific scheme just for the Burren area called the Burren Life Project. First we had rips and that was great. Uh, Burren Life, rips didn't suit us. Rips was good but it wasn't always for the best. Uh, Burren Life came then and look, that was, if you like, tailor-made for us. It was brilliant for us. The Burren is a good bit different to farm to land anywhere else. It's temperamentally sensitive and it's brilliant. Look, it's better than the Golden Vale sometimes. You know, in the wintertime it's brilliant. But it, it needs to be looked after. Now, uh, I suppose in before the Burn Life came, 
they, we were working on a per head basis. We'll say there was a headage for if you had 10 suckler cows, you got so much. If you had 20, you got twice as much. And if you had 50, you got you were on the pig's back. So we tended to follow that to the detriment of the burn. It was a very uh, one-size-fits-all approach very before one size. the burn life. The burn life, you said, like you said, is tailor-made. So we might walk on a little bit further because you have some, uh, some things that you got from the project and we might just talk about that and how they suit your farm. So we might just walk on a little bit. So Michael, walking on a bit further here now, can you just, I'm, I'm pointing at some gates and I'm pointing at um, kind of a, a crush facility yes. or a pen that you um, have here as well. Does that all come through the project? That, they helped us through the burn life to get that. Um, the gates, as you can see, are wrought iron gates and they, they really blend in with the place. They're kind um, of old fashioned. They're they? old fashioned, albeit they are they are only three or four years old, but they really fit in with the place. Um, the crush, before the crush came, look at uh, there's about a mile of a road from here to the other end of the place. The crush at the other end. So now we have a crush at both ends, which is brilliant. Like when we were small, you could spend ages and ages looking for something. And also water was an issue. Water was an issue back that time as well. Um, water going dry and flipping, just water not there, which, which was a problem. But the solar-powered troughs have changed uh, that long, have they? No, solar-powered fence. Uh, the troughs and the water supply was fenced off and uh, a truck out from it, gravity flow down along to a truck. So whatever you had, you mined it. Whereas before, it was wasteful. And cattle walking into it and dung into it, and that was not as you would have it. It wasn't just the improvements being made to your farm, but it kind of added that sense of community because you were all in it. It wasn't just you in it. There were farmers from all over the burn in it. Yes, all a lot of farmers were in it. Also, the guy making the gates, he had um, he 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 had a few pounds out of it. Also, you had guys, maybe younger fellas, who became contractors clearing the scrub. Like scrub clearing was a big thing in it. And maybe you had farmers um, who were moving on a bit, and they weren't going to start in now with a chainsaw cutting hazel. But you might have guys, maybe twenty three, four and it was a bit of seasonal work for them, which, which was great. So the money was well spread out and the vast majority of it stayed in the local area, which was brilliant. So it's improved an awful lot, but things change. So what happened, especially in around the west of Ireland, was there were these individual schemes that, like you said, had been tailor-made for farmers. That came into a big umbrella grouping of Acres, which is a new agri-environmental scheme, and about 18,000 of the farmers in Acres overall are in cooperation measures. So it would have been the burn line would have been other uh, smaller projects along the western seaboard usually how have you found the new acre scheme that new agri environmental scheme look at it's a big reduction i'm not too bad in that i had a lot of work done um, there is going to be a delay now and the department said it, it'll be january potentially february before the payments are made to it's nearly 20,000 farmers and these are the farmers i guess in the poorest areas as well along the western sea- seaboard so that's that's a bit of a kick in the teeth for those farmers isn't it yeah it is it it, it, it is but as i say i am say i'm in top of my game now uh, if i am but uh, like I'll be able to wear it. But for somebody that had young lads in college, it's it's, it's going to be it's going to have a hell of an effect. Um, now I th- I'm hoping it'll come in January. Having said all that, I'm hoping it'll come in January uh, because we're coming into the expensive time. We we'll say we have to buy nuts for the cattle and the Craig and all that. But we're fortunate if we have Craig. Some guys have cattle inside in sheds and they're to be paid for the whole, every day. Like at least these are out in the Craig and just okay. We'll start with nuts and um, they'll be okay.
Because the average payment that farmers in the cooperation measure would get is around five and a half thousand euro. Like that's not to be sniffed at, especially when you've bills and bills are more expensive in winter time. You've got contractors looking to be paid as well for summer fodder for fodder that was made in the summertime. Absolutely, and and those guys generally are paid when the hiddish comes before Christmas. And I know myself, uh, those guys are looking for money, and 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 rightly so. They need to be paid. Like everybody needs to be paid. Everybody needs to be paid. So why can we not get paid? No, we did sign up to it, like, and we are doing as we were asked. That element that you mentioned earlier, the community that was built up around the Burn Life project, has that been maintained through Acres, or is it still there? I, I'm hoping it has. I, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, I'm hoping it has. Um, we certainly haven't nearly as much... Uh, interaction with the acres as we had with Burn Life. Burn Life had an office over here in Canada. They were so approachable. You could ring them literally any time. We knew them well. So they were like family. Um, they, 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 they were like Brendan Dunford and Sharon Pair. We knew them so well. Um, I hope it will. Uh, do I think it will? Possibly not as well, but we will see. Yeah, Michael Collins talking to Hannah there. We understand from uh, something written in the Farmer's Journal that the department's computer system is apparently finding it hard to manage the complexity of the scorecards that are coming back that are used to assess how well farmers are doing in protecting nature. And that is the source of the delay. There is a great irony in the timing of all of this and the failure to make this payment. And that is that yesterday, the 8th of December, is by tradition the day that country people paid all of their bills. That and the origin of many other Christmas traditions after the break. Email countrywide at rte.ie Countrywide on RTE Radio 1 Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, literally oh dear. We are here only to spread happiness and light, but it seems every time on this programme we talk about the deer, the phone lines get incredibly agitated. 51551. Fiona McGowan, who is an ecologist and a botanist, text to say, surveying many of our last remaining native woodlands over recent years, it is heartbreaking to realise how many are essentially dying out with little to no young trees coming on due to deer grazing. It is a huge biodiversity crisis that is going under the radar. And at the other end of the spectrum, Eileen says, leave the beautiful deer alone. They are God's creatures. Peter in Dublin says, the seeker deer are like rhododendrons, beautiful to look at, but alien and invasive and need active control. If something's been here for 160 years, is it still invasive? 51551 for your thoughts on that, please, folks. If you find yourself anywhere near the village of Shanna Golden in Limerick after dark at the moment, you may notice a dome of light puncturing the night sky. So bright, you might be excused for thinking that you had taken a wrong turn somewhere and had ended up on the Las Vegas Strip. While some of us may be partial to the odd festive light outdoors, Cormac Hayes takes it to an entirely different level, as Brenda Donoghue saw for herself. I think it's 12 or 13, but we have loads hidden around the place, and we even have the signs up, naughty else at work. Park, look at Grinch. You love Grinch. See him? Oh, it's fantastic. It's lovely. It really gets you in the spirit. It's just brilliant. The kids are... Loving it, aren't you guys? Yeah. yeah. What are their names? Connor. Porrick. Porrick, big question. 
What did you ask Santi for? A uh, farm. And what do you want on your farm? Cows and calf. What? We have to go and come to the lights. We have to come to the lights. Is this your That's mom? That's Liam. Liam's two. What age are you, Charlie? I'm eight. I do like Christmas. It's my favourite time of the year. We were in Lapland last year and there's more lights here. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's more Christmas lights here yeah. than there's in Lapland, yeah. I've had a lower budget. <laughs> I think, like, any time you're, fr- you're frustrated, whatever, um, <laughs> if you come um, here, I just think it calms you down. And I also think it also helps you and it makes you proud because you can see everything and it's just, like, fantastic. How much was all this? Oh, it's a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of money. Yeah, so, like, when we were young, my um, uh, bought a Santa and a set of lights. There was nearly World War Three, but the following year, Dad went into Newsons that used to be a shop in Limerick and bought sets of lights. Then we started going to America and bringing in lights, and I'd be motivated because the charities around that are linked to my brother Noel, who was only 12, who passed away, um, and for Dad as well, who passed away as well. So that's what it's about, and the amount of kids you get here is phenomenal. Right, Cormac, let's walk and talk and have a look at the scale of this. Talk to me about the light bulbs you're using. How many would you say? Uh, I say we're going over the 500,000 LED marks. Um, that's including all the figurines and everything. As you can see, there are all different types of figurines here. Um, we have a horse carriage that came all the way from Florida to change the bulbs over. So many people are talking about energy efficiency and saving electricity, and you've over 500,000 light bulbs here. So everything here is 100% LED energy saving, and it's just like even all the what I call the blow molds is the Santis and stuff. They used to be 40 wattage, they're now 8.5 wattage, so you really are saving. And I suppose last year, with the energy crisis, we looked at everything. And so I have everything worked down. I have a whiteboard up in the office there, and I have it down to a T at this stage. There's a lot of rope light. Uh, roughly, the lights that are there could be about 100 kilometres, where they're all doubled up just to bring that extra bit of sparkle up on people's eyes. Come and point out some of the showstoppers for me here. Well, I suppose my favourite one is the car over there. I think the, the family were laughing. I have about 6,000 lights on it. I have Santi in the driver's seat, Miss Claus. It's an actual car. Yes, yeah. to- my old Toyota Aventus. I bought it off a priest, so there's great old slagging about it. <laughs> <laughs> we have dinosaurs this year, and I have a six-foot giraffe, hippo, crocodiles. We have a playhouse there with all the characters around it and everything like that. Flamingos, pigs, you name it, we've got it. And we- you light it. If you stand close enough to you, you'll get a Christmas light put around li- you. <laughs> if it doesn't light, I'll make it light. <laughs> How about your bill like? Since February, I've been putting away 20 euros. It comes out of my own back pocket. Uh, we funded ourselves, so anything that goes into the bucket goes straight towards the four wonderful charities. So you pay it, you save and you pay the bill? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and how much have you raised over the years? In the last five years, we've raised over 85,000 for the charities. Can I ask you about how much work is involved in putting this together? Um, started about the 8th or 9th of September. Um, I usually start work at half four in the morning. Um, my own uh, job, day job. Uh, come home in the evening here about half one. You're out here until half eleven. Some nights have been until about half three in the morning above in the shed, repairing stuff. There's a lot of time and effort goes into it. That's great. And look, you'll see around you That's at the moment, your yeah. little kids around and, you know, it's a frosty night here and people still come out, which is great. It's amazing. It's my favourite. Yeah.
favorite place to go yeah. because I get to see all the lights and it's different every year. So for those who've turned up and made the effort on this cold night to come out, is it worth it? What do they think? Uh, my name is Matthew yeah. and I just came here with my whole family and my Hello. cousins and kids. Yes. Uh, we come here every year and every year is absolutely spectacular. And there is more and more and more and it's just <laughs> absolutely fabulous. And where are you from? Originally, I'm from Poland. And how does it compare to anything you would see in Poland in terms of a, a house? Uh, to be honest with you, I have never seen such a thing in Poland ever in my life. Brings the joy as well, like you know, and it brings the the spirit of Christmas. You've seen the display. What did you think? You've come from Tralee. What? <laughs> yes, from Tralee. Yes, yes. Yeah. I love snowmen <laughs> and the trees. Just everything. It it looks happy. Do you want to come in for a cup of tea, Mary? I choose I'll I choose I'll go in for a cup of tea. Perfect, no, but I'll come in and I'll do no, I've been down one my, my my friend Noel now next weekend and we'll been in as well for I a cup of tea. Hello, what's your name? My name is Mary Linehan. It's just unbelievable. There's a special for Christmas, even for children, for elderly people. Yeah. Everybody, because I, like, I do home care myself, and we have people coming from all over West Limerick coming to see it. Every age group, it's just amazing, it's fabulous. When I was a child, their father was the first person to have a light. Yeah. The house lit up for Christmas. And then their father passed away, and it, everyone was kind of disappointed. It disappeared for a few years. Yeah. And Karma came back with magic. Do you know what would put me off it? What? There's an awful lot of Limerick flags here. I should use you have to have the Limerick flags. In England, we're going to have cock flags now or, or carry flags. You know, like, we have to have the Limerick flags. You know, that's what it's all about. You are the home of Island champions. Do you have a favourite piece? The horse, look at the beautiful carriage there on the horse. Like, where would you get that? Where you stand in as much I've got that from. It's fabulous. Just stands out there behind the lights and stuff. The blue lights are really shining it out. It's fabulous. Tell me a little bit about you and Christmas. What's going on? I work Christmas. I do, I do home help and I go. Do, I do. I always work Christmas Day. It's nice to go around to the people that mightn't have family. Call in and do whatever you have to do to have a chat with them. And that's my Christmas. I do, I like working on Christmas. God, you're amazing. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and Mary, doing that does that give you satisfaction? Oh then? yeah, it would give me great satisfaction to do it. To go, to go in and brighten up somebody's day that's what, that, that's what life is all about after we've gone back the last couple of years with COVID like there was Christmases there that people didn't have anyone couldn't call we were the only ones calling to them so it is great satisfaction to put a smile on someone's face what an amazing thing you're doing on Christmas Day fair juice to you and all the different home helpers around the country who are doing the same thing thank you very much and I have to say come on the Limerick Holders <laughs> That's our Brenda in Shanna Golden. The four charities, Milford Care Centre, the Midwestern Cancer Foundation, Cleanas Foundation and St. Gabriel's Foundation are those that Cormac Hayes is raising money for. So there's the Hayes family creating traditions and there's other people who are going to go and see Cormac's lights creating their own Christmas traditions. So we got to thinking might be nice to have a conversation about the uniquely Irish Christmas traditions that we have created for ourselves and no better man to have that chat with than Shane Lahan, folklorist, no stranger to Countrywide. You are very welcome. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, Philip. I hope, hope I'm really getting into the Christmas mood this morning, listening to all that wonderful Good. accounts there. Good. I mentioned, because I did not know this until this morning, uh, just before the break, how it was that yesterday, the 8th of December, yes, it's the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, but it was also traditionally the day on which country people paid the bills and settled the accounts. 
That's it. That's it. Because, you know, it was also known, Philip, as the live market. It was the time when the, uh, the geese and the ducks and later on the turkeys, they were all brought in. Uh, they were brought into town and um, the merchants and so on took them over. And of course, the, the country people were paid, of course, some money. And the, you had a system called drawing the line in the, in the shops long ago. Anything that you had uh, consumed up to now, you drew the line, you paid off uh, your bills. And then in addition, what you got was what was called the Christmas box. And the Christmas box was like usually uh, uh, some tea, uh, maybe some Christmas cake, a slab of, of corny cake, but always and ever a candle, a Christmas candle. And I'm not talking about the small little candles that we have now, but a big fat tallow candle, um, uh, really as, as thick as a, a, a spade handle. And that was home uh, then. And that became the major icon, we'll say, mm. right throughout the Christmas period. It, it was always lit uh, for the 12 days of Christmas. Because the 12 days of Christmas, from Christmas Eve to Epiphany on the 6th, they represented the 12 months of the year. And it was kind of time out of time. It was a time taken off. And the youngest in the house always had the pleasure, always had the uh, uh, the honour of lighting the candle. They usually lit it around six o'clock in, uh, uh, on Christmas Eve. And it would stay lighting for the full length of the 12 days. And if it went out, Philip, if it went out at any one occasion, let's say somebody opened the door and it blew out, they would say, oh, listen, today is the, like the fourth day or whatever. Something is going to happen now in the month of April. Uh, it could be good, it could be bad or whatever. So people <laughs> took great regard for the, so, the candle. Something is but, going to happen. That's great. But, but, there, but, there was, but that day, yeah. that day was then synonymous with, as I said, people went in, paid the bills. They got the Christmas box then from the grocer. What would be in it apart from the candle? Well, the, yeah, so so you, usually it was it was kind of luxuries of Christmas, like you were bringing home the Christmas at that point in time. But always the the grocers. I remember my own grandmother had a shop like that, and they used to have big slabs of of currant cake, you know, and they would cut them into pieces and they would be wrapped up and given off. But also maybe some wine if they were the customers were particularly good. The mm-hmm, women would get a, mm-hmm. a a port or a sherry or any any of those sort of things. So that was generally the uh, the idea. We we always remember another great tradition that I love and I really adore it is the crib and you know we, we, we think about the cribs and we think about I know you were talking about the moving crib and and, uh, and all of that the live crib but um, in Ireland, we, we always looked at the crib as a sort of a plaything. You know, you had everything from camels and sheep and donkeys and, and cows and so on. But there's a lovely tradition in Ireland about the uh, the donkey and the cow in the crib in Ireland. And the one I always love is that, you know, the, the infant Jesus was there and there was on the manger with the straw in it and the cow and the donkey as we, we, we used to place them very carefully behind. Um, and we're told the story in Irish folklore that the, uh, the donkey uh, actually took a bite out of the manger uh, and ate some of the straw, making the uh, the child a bit uh, less less comfortable, as it were. And ever since then, the donkey has to do all the hard work on the farm, and that's how he got that. Whereas whereas the, the cow was was nice and gentle. There's and so another on. unfair tradition, or an animal that gets an unfair reception at Christmas, and that's the wren. By comparison with the robin, who is actually the violent little sod in in the animal kingdom. <laughs> I love I love the Robin at Christmas as well. We'll go, come to Ren very quickly in a moment, but I love the stories. Um, we're told in the crib as well that the Robin was actually uh, very, very good. There was a brazier keeping everyone warm and it was going out. And the Robin, he went along he went, and he fluttered his wings to bellus, as it were, put the air in and, and keep the, the, the brazier going. And that's how he has the red that's breast. That was has, one of the lovely stories. That's how he has his uh, red breast. We'll leave, we'll leave the Wren for its own programme closer to New Year 
year or into into the new year because that's all that we have time for this morning. Thank you very much for joining us though, Shane. Happy Christmas to you. It's all that we have time for. Amandine Paso-Divine on Not of the Lights. Jamie Doyle tested each bulb one by one. Eileen Heron made sure that the lights were set to always on and not to flashing, folks. On this hill, I will make my last stand. Sinead Mooney is on the way with your playback. Have a great weekend. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.